Crash Course in History, Rabbi Blyweiss, session number 14, which I think will be, um, at least for the time being, it'll be, it'll be our uh, last, and then we'll have to figure out how we get totally in. I wanted to do an intro there. Like, welcome to <laughs> Blyweiss's class, the, uh, session 14. Oh, wow. Now I feel official. Uh, now I can really start. I think we have about another 10 sessions. Somewhere, if we can get into the year, we'll try, and if not, then not. The, um, we started talking about what they call the Great Revolt, which comes after at the heels of the many smaller revolts, this ongoing historical, much a, a conflict between Esav and Yaakov, much of history could be understood within the prism of the conflict between Esav and Yaakov uh, till today. And uh, we saw the fighting break out in um, Kesari and spread, went vile around the country. Clearly it was waiting to happen. Now Chazal has let's say, a harder time in trying to figure out the significance or the reason for the destruction of the second temple harder than the destruction of the first temple. See, in the, do you remember, the first temple was destroyed because of the three, what we call Yeharik Valyavor, the, the um, idolatry, murder, all the prohibitions associated with intimacy, and um, they, uh, that was easier. This one might be a little bit more difficult because, on some level, the good guys remain good guys. I mean, you got Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka, you've got Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, you've got you got uh, you got a whole host of, of gedolim who are sitting learning Torah, who are really trying their best. Um, the answer is not as obvious. Now, there is an answer. There are actually multiple answers. I'm not going to go into all of them now, but I'm going to review briefly the famous ones. The one that everybody knows. Is one of, is the main answer, of course, and that is sinas chinam, which means gratuitous hatred. Now, if you grew up, let's say, in a in a in a non-traditional framework, they'll say it was because of anti-pluralism. See, the Jews were hating one another, uh, and they didn't tolerate everybody. And therefore, the lesson we have to derive from this destruction of the Second Temple is that we should we're all the same and we're all equally legitimate. They, they will, and they, they do repeatedly. Right? We're all the same. Reform, conservative, uh, reconstructionist, orthodox is all the same, and therefore anybody who's intolerant is guilty of the same sin as Sinas Chinam. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating twist that they put on it. I actually did my first year guiding in 1990. My first year in 90, I, I guided and I did some creative stuff. And I did. I had to guide the old city for, with a bunch of reform. I'm sorry. I know. Just, just me. The uh, not now. The um, the uh, I had to guide a reform groups um, and on the theme in the old city of the destruction of the temple. And so I conceived of a murder mystery in which I was the detective Hercule Falafel. Um, in, in which um, we went around and the way I rigged it, I had it all set up. We went to the Wall Museum, which is the old. Um, uh, Hellenistic Sadducee place. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Wall Museum, the, room, the remains of the rich ha- houses in the upper city of Yerushalayim, Yerukodesh. And um, as I'm talking, giving the background, suddenly one of, I had I had secretly worked out with various hammy uh, character actor types um, to come out in surprise. And I worked out with Stella Sadducee, one of the one of the one of the ca- counselors, to pop out suddenly dressed in high society clothes because the Sadducees were very rich and money grabbing and power hungry. And she said, "What are you doing in my house? Get off my tiles!" And and then I and then we um, I had the group 
give her the three the three degree. Stella Sadducee, Vel you the night of Tisha B'Av, 70 CE. And she said, No, I didn't do it. And then and then we had I had all these characters. I had actually a guy who was from the he was actually originally Russian. His name was Roman. Um, and I had him lean against one of the Corinthian column Roman pillars in the Cardo, you can go into the old city. And he sat there like an old James Cagney character, tossing an ancient coin in the air, uh, leaning against the pole saying, yeah, so uh, we destroyed the second temple, what's it to you? And, and like that. We interviewed everybody as a character, we came out, and of course, who done it was a big murder mystery. At the end, I, I assembled all the characters. Um, who would actually destroy the second temple of Jerusalem? And this is not my intention to talk about right now, but I figured it's relevant. Um, who destroyed it? So I said, they all done it. Everybody was guilty. Um, it was Sinas Chinam. It was the Guru's hatred between all the different factions, which was a classic lesson um, from the day. But that's a terrible distortion. If it set the record straight, which is partly, partly what I'm trying to do here, uh, is um, it's not true that they all done it. Vionis and Ibishets of the 18th century explain when Chazal talk about sinas chinam, gratuitous hatred, what they're discussing is um, it's hatred of people for Torah. That's what's gratuitous. Um, the Torah people don't hate because then they're not really Torah people. If they're over on the, what Rabbi Kiva defines as the major principle in the Torah, the they can't reasonably be called Torah Jews. You're allowed to hate people who go against Hashem, but not the person for the person. You hate the fact that they hate that they're going against Hashem. But Rav Yonas and Ibishitz explains that the people that Sinas Chinam really was, because um, people were, it, were ignorant and they channeled their jealousy towards the Talmud Chachamim. And as I point out throughout history, you see patterns in history that were true then and they're as true, if not more true, than ever today. How many people do you know who channel their own ignorance, their hatred, of, either ignorance for Judaism, they channel their hatred towards the Chachamim, towards the people who are holding in Torah, learning Torah? They're threatened by it. There are all kinds of things, all kinds of, all kinds of, we can, we can, we can analyze it and psychoanalyze it, but that's, that's more or less the same thing. That's really the classic definition of sinas chinam, and that's what plagued the Jews and ultimately led to the destruction. Somebody had a thought or a question? <laughs> Daniel, was that you? I would, no, I would say, like, yeah. Why do people hate rabbis? Because they represent everything that's right, and they don't want to hear what's right. They want to hear. That's what's a nice like. answer, Ellie. I think you're onto that's something. That's the truth. And Rabbi Pitham's ready to go. There was a, a secular member of the Knesset who once turned to one of the uh, ultra orthodox, what they call Haredi members of the Knesset, and says, "You know why I hate you? Because you look like my grandfather." Well, then I hated my grandfather. Right. No, but the truth is, tell me the truth. Like rabbis represent everything that is right and everything that you should do, and everybody. And nobody like, wants to hear people that. People don't like rabbis are rebellious. That's they want to do what they want to do. It's, it's, it's a gross generalization, and as such, there are always going to be exceptions to the rule, but it explains a lot. Also, it really does, and I think I mean, that's what Rabbi Yonis, I think that's the meta point that's behind Rabbi Yonis and Ivish's I mean, observation. You can hate the rabbi's personality, you can hate the way he teaches. Also true, for sure, and you know people will look for excuses. My rabbi scratched his eyebrow in a funny way, and therefore I hate him. In other words, they want to hate him because it's a self-fulfilling problem. It's a, ju it's a justifier. It means because then I don't have to be. If, if, my, if I can find fault with my rabbi, then I can justify my own lack of observance. Or you can respect your rabbi and just don't like him. Also true. You're talking about, it's all also, true. If you hold We're talking in broad generalizations. It's true. But there's a general tendency, especially for less religious people, to have problems with rabbinic figures. For this reason, simple human psychology. Jeremy? There's a, there's a, 
there's a thing where like the students would like make fun, like you know, would often make fun of Ramadan. It doesn't happen here, but I've heard of these people that do that. For sure. And they and they would like make fun of the rabbis and like say, oh, the rabbis like this. They're trying to bring the rabbis down to like a lower level so they can so they so they, uh, they can make themselves like. Then, then, that way, it's a great self-justifier. It's not unlike what the Greeks did with their gods. Because if your rabbi is really terribly flawed, and then he starts saying something that's personally challenging, you could say, well, I don't accept that. I don't accept that either. And the rabbi's messed up, so I don't have to accept it. it it's, it's a great self-justifier, is the idea. Yeah. How can there be a revolt among all these sects in a time where there are how can there be a revolt when there's already occupation? This is, we're describing, this is one of the downsides of a crash course in history. I'm grossly oversimplifying what was an ongoing process that really lasted through much of the Second Temple. I mean, the seeds of evil, a lot of them are planted when Alexander the Great conquered the world. And the influence of the Hellenizers, we've been seeing generation after generation. So it's cumulative. It's not like suddenly they were doing this. It was already in place before the Roman Empire took over. We're just seeing the end result, the corruption and the erosion, the implosion, as it were, of the Jews as, as, as history unpacks. The Gemara, the, can you say that the biggest enemy of the Jews is the Jews? Yeah, for sure. And that way, for sure. We're always, that was, that's really, Yosef, is the major theme. If you got anything out of these 14 sessions that we had together, 14, wow. Uh, we've been together a lot. The, um, I didn't expect this at the beginning, and I, I took much longer than I expected. But in any case, if you get anything, one of the major themes is, and remember the two words? Hachet Goren. It was everything is really, we do it to ourselves. It was the tendency in the modern day, too, is to say it's all the Arabs' fault. They're evil, they're, they're, they do all these things, and I'm not absolving them. Nobody, Hashem doesn't absolve evil people. If they come and they stab the Jews, they're going to they're gonna be accountable for that in the end of days. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're absolved either. If this bad stuff is, if bad stuff is happening to good people, or even bad people or mediocre people like most of us, um, so then we are ultimately responsible for that. We have made tshuva properly. Go tell that the politicians, they don't want to hear it. They look for political solutions when often spiritual solutions are the only things that will really uh, resolve the issue. The Mardadarim tells us that there's another reason for the destruction of the second temple, unlike the first. They say, Lo birchu They didn't say a bracha on Torah before they learned. And you think, wow, I mean, come on, you know, that's kind of nitpicky, isn't it? Why? What's the big deal? So the Maral of, of Prague has a whole important tshuva on this, explaining what it means, the significance. They didn't appreciate the gold when they had it. They had Torah in their midst, and they learned Torah, don't get me wrong. They just didn't really appreciate the ramifications of having the will of the Bore Ola. In our midst, hold the thought just a moment, Jeremy. Just in, in our midst, we had, we had the ability to sit, learn Torah, live Torah, act on all the principles, on the beautiful ideals of Torah, and they didn't fully realize and appreciate that without that basic foundation, as the Maral puts it, without the roots, the tree withers. And that's the process we see also happening simultaneously, and it's not in conflict with the first analysis of Sinas Chinam. That's what we see unfolding as, the t as we lead towards the, the destruction of the Second Temple. Yes, Jeremy. So it's so it's similar to today with uh yeshiva, with like yeshiva high schools. I have all these like classes yeshiva. It's like oh you know I gotta get out of pad now I gotta go get on tomorrow and it's like they don't appreciate how good it is. They just it's just. I think you're so on the mark. Thank you very much for the observation. Anybody didn't hear? I'm just going to reinforce in case it didn't get out of the day. You, you used Yeshiva High Schools as an example. I think it doesn't stop there. It's a lot of places. 
it's in the Haredi sector, it's in the modern Orthodox sector. It's a general problem, especially people born to from Kai. Often it becomes rote, it becomes overly familiar, and you don't appreciate what you're, the gold, the chest of gold you're sitting on. That's why. That's why I think that like in, in modern Orthodox as well. But Haredi, Haredi also have this issue. I'm fine. So I'm saying like in high school, like, my, like at least like mine, like like you take it like such a, as such a joke because you're getting graded on it, and it's just like a regular class. Like a, right. Like it's just like like in our school, like they did like one Judaic class, one one secular class, one Judaic class, one secular class. So it's just part of your schedule. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. You take it for granted. It becomes overly familiar. Hey, yeah, you know, go to Davin. Right, you want to go to Davin? I'm right, go to Davin. Can you like Davin quick? I think he's getting over. Attitude, for sure. That's that's what the Gemara and Darim is pointing to. Right, right. Gemara Gitin says the third answer I'm going to deal with, and just for the record, there are many more. The, another Gemara in Gitin tells us that if the serpent is coiled around the keg of honey, the Gemara uses this metaphor. It says the keg has to be smashed in order to destroy the serpent. So what's a what's the muscle? What's the nimshah? What are we talking about? The serpent is the uh, is the is the wicked sects the dominant that, that are that have so in such a uh, disproportionate influence on the and the Essenes and the Baitusim and the Christians and many of the sects, um, and they're so enthralled, they're so in the grip of power and wealth and intrigue that in order to get at the honey, the Torah, you had to destroy the the cask. What's the cask? The base of Mikdash. They destroyed the base of Mikdash, and indeed, this is fantastic observation. Um, Rabbi Victor Miller points out, based on this Gemara, he said when the temple was destroyed the sects all went away. The Tzdukim died out, they left no writings. There are no more Baitusim, there are no more Essenes. They're all gone and if the Essenes were the people that did Sea Scrolls they died out. They left, they left, they left their code and we found it in, in these caves. That's the only thing that survives of their, of their tradition. Because when you lost the temple, the physical grounding of the Jewish people, there was no more power struggle. There was no more vying for authority or supremacy. It was all they had left was effectively Klal Yisrael and their Torah. Now, when the Romans flattened the old city, uh, and they'll do so initially in the destruction of the temple in the year 70, but especially approximately the year 135 with the put down of the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, Hadrian in his zeal and his, his desire for bloodlust and vengeance, he flattened the old city. The only original structures remaining standing, three towers by Jaffa Gate and the remnants of Harabais, whatever there were, the coastal Maravi, the Western Wall, and, and the little bits and pieces in and around, uh, around the, the Temple Mount, much, much of it lay in cinders and destruction. And he figured, you know, if I can destroy the whole city, well, then the Jews will perish. Because he couldn't imagine, think of it, this is the attitude of Asa. This is the Roman attitude. Can't imagine that a people could lose their whole commonwealth could lose their country, their state, their city, their capital, their, their, their buildings, and somehow survive the ordeal. Do you realize, we started, we started this class with this, the, the, the greatest miracle of our history is the fact that we're still here against all the odds. The Romans are long since gone, remember Mark Twain pointed this out. And the Jews are still kicking. They couldn't anticipate that we had a Torah to sustain us. It's the word of Hashem, so naturally sustains us through everything, and uh, that's, that's really the greatest miracle. Civil war between Klal Yisrael breaks out. There's war all around the country. There's war within the old city of Yerushalayim, which at this point is as large as it'll get until the modern era. Uh, I would love to take you. Ugh. Last year we got to go. I had a whole day. I got to take people around the old city. There's fantastic models you can see. Do you know how far the old city reached in the, at this point in history? They came as far really close, right out that window, at the top of that hill, right? The old city reached. 
Do you know where there's the Paz gas station just in East Jerusalem as you walk yeah. down this road? Yeah. There's remnants of what they call the third wall. As you see, it describes the third wall. You can stand at today. Unmistakable. That's where that's where eventually Titus breaches uh, the outer walls of Yushalayim, and that's as far as the old city reached back in the day. And the zealots, as they're called, questionable term, they seized Harabais. Uh, they, they were helped by the Jewish enemies, including the Edomim and the other nations. The, uh, the uh, Hellenized, the descendants of Herod, Agrippus II, who's a bad guy, watched happily, and, and the Romans especially, because the Jews were doing their dirty work for them. You know, when we're disunified, when we battle one another, so then they don't have to battle us. We'll take care of their work for them. And that's, that's much of what happened. Uh, the fighting spreads between Romans and Jews, between Jews and Jews, as far north as Syria, as far south as Egypt. The rabbis are not listened to, and they retire to the base measures to learn and to daven. What else are they going to do? Vespasian, the general, enters Akko in the north with his forces. His son Titus comes down from Egypt, and it's a two-pronged attack, and they start picking off one Jewish community after another. Anybody who's been traveling around here to Israel, anybody been to Gamla in the Golan Heights? Okay, so you heard the story perhaps of Gamla. It's much like the Masada story of a, of, of a tragedy of, of, of a community that was there on this gorgeous mountain uh, community. There are ruins of a shul and mikvahs and everything up there. And the tragedy is Josephus, Josephus describes as the last Jews went up to the top peak of Gamla to do hike up to the edge and then fell off to their death as they fell down the mountain. Uh, similar story repeated bloodbaths in Tiveri and Gush Chalav and Yodfat, where Josephus himself says he escaped. If you can believe the guy. And there's a slow process of methodical capture, slaughter, and destruction of each city, one after the other. Some defenseless, others not. Didn't matter. In Yushalayim, people called the Sikrikin, who were bore knives and, and, and were radical and went around killing people, they did something really awful. There were these three tzaddikim, three families of rich people. Um, one of them, you know, Kalva Subua. Uh, the father, Kalva Subua, had a very famous daughter who'd marry Rebbe Kiva later on. So um, they had storehouses with supplies, food and water, and everything you could possibly need to sustain Jews for 22 years. And the Sikrikin went to the storehouses and burned them down. Why would they do such a thing? They were bothered that not all the Jews were up in arms trying to fight the Romans. And they said, we'll starve the Jews into submission and they'll have to fight. And that's what they did. And as we said, every vision of the, of the klala, of the curse starts coming true as the famine sets in, uh, their corpses lining the streets. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai finds such a corpse, a, a formerly very wealthy woman who, uh, who, when her shoe fell off, she wasn't used to this kind of rough life. She perished. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai decides, I've got to get out of Yerushalayim. And a story that's told in five different places. Remember I mentioned that Josephus told the story about himself. He decides since the zealous fighters are not letting Jews out, that he's going to sneak out. His, they fake his death. His students carry his coffin out of the gates. The Sikriki and the Jewish guards don't, aren't letting anybody out. They don't believe the, 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 um, the students when they say that they're carrying their dead rabbi. rabbi. So the, the guards say, well, let me stab the coffin to make sure he's really dead. And the students, these are smart people, they're rabbis, uh, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer, Ben Hyrcanus, uh, they say to the guards, they say, um, what will you think the Romans will say about us Jews if they see you stabbing the coffin of your own rabbis? And the guards are taken aback, because with everything said and done, they still have some respect for rabbis. They let the coffin go, 
Um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka comes out and gives you a condensed version of a very famous story that should be familiar if it's not. Um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka comes out, he meets Vespasian, he, bounds, he bows down to the general Vespasian, he says, Shalom Alech HaMelech, Shalom Alech HaMelech. And Vespasian says, you're high of Misa twice. Two reasons for capital crime. First of all, insubordination, I'm not the king, I'm the general. The king's ba- Caesar's back in Rome. Second of all, if I'm the king, what took you so long? You can't win with the Romans. And he says, it, it, instead of giving him immediate death on the spot, he imprisons Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka. Oh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka explains. He defends himself. He says, first of all, you are the king because Hashem never just destroys the Jewish people. He destroys us in grand style. He would never put, in the hand, put us in the hands of a middleman. You, therefore, must be the king. Second of all, I didn't get out because they wouldn't let me out. The ki- uh, Vespasian is momentarily assuaged. He throws the rabbi into prison. He's taking a bath a few days later. And word comes that the, that the king, the fourth in one year, was assassinated back in Rome. And uh, the Senate had just elected Vespasian, the king. And he had been king for the last week without his knowing it. So now Vespasian is very excited. He gets so excited that his body bloats. He gets out of the bath and he can't, he can't put his shoe on because his foot has swelled. And he thinks... Bring me that smart rabbi who predicted all this stuff. He'll get me out of this diplomatic embarrassment. They bring in Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Uh, he asks him, he asks him, what do I do? I got these swelled, foot, it does, these swelled feet. It does not befit a, uh, a Caesar. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sees his predicament. He says, do you have any enemies? This patient says, enemies? Are you kidding? I'm made of them. He says, bring your worst enemy in. He says, why? Just bring your first enemy in. They bring in the enemy. Uh, Vespasian looks at him and he's seething in anger. He's got smoke coming out of each ear. Right? He's seething in anger and in his anger, his feet swelling goes down. He gets his shoes on. He looks at Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. He says, three wishes. What do you wish for? The newly elected Roman Caesar has just asked you, what would you like? Anything in the world, what would you like? What do you wish for? Three wishes. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm a little, I'm a little kid at heart. After the first wish, I, I waste on a candy bar. My second wish is I want 100 more wishes. That's me. Yeah. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai doesn't go in that direction. He says, he says three pretty oddball kinds of things. I'm not going in order that's presented in the Gemara. Stop, stop, stop. I want to do my own order. I like my dramatic exposition. Uh, first one, he says, see my friend over there? His name is Ratzaduk. He's been fasting 40 years, anticipating the Horban. He needs doctors very seriously. Get him doctors. So this patient says, doctors we have. He's my friend over there. His name is Rabbi Gamliel. Uh, he's the descendant of the Hillel line of the Nassim. Um, they got to survive. They're from the house of David. We need them as figureheads of the Jewish people. Vespasian says, we can do that too. We'll preserve the figureheads. Check. He says, most famously, Tenli Yavne Vechachameha. Give me the place called Yavne and its wise men. Now, where's Yavne? Anybody been to the place of the yeshiva today called Karen Yavne? Yeah. Where's Yavne located? Yeah. Nowheresville. It's barely even on the coast. It's a little Pitzkala nothing. And that's the point. Half Torah will travel. If I got a little off the radar location to sit and immerse myself in Torah, Klal Yisrael will survive. That's why the story is justifiably famous. It's the vision of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to realize with Torah, the Jewish people will, will, will win out, will be able to, to, to last beyond all of the persecution and ultimately the destruction, and we will survive. And he gets that, and he, and he gets he gets Yavne, inherits, and he goes there, and uh, Klal Yisrael is here, arguably very much because of his vision. Romans breached the walls on the 17th of Tammuz. We fast that day. This is the day that the Korban Tamit stops until today. No Korban Tamit. We say it in our tefillah, but that's all. 
on ninth of Av, it's Motzi Shabbos, it's the seventh year in the Shemitah cycle, and remember every last detail, just like the WTC, you remember where you were that day, Chazal record this for posterity. A soldier lights the fire that destroys the base of Mikdash. Josephus says this was against the order of Titus. Titus is the general, he's the son of Vespasian, it's against Titus's order. Uh, see, Josephus is probably lying. Because he has to, he has to make the Romans feel good. Chazal tell a very different story. Chazal's story is shocking. Anybody who learned the Gemara Gitin that you're allowed to learn on Tisha B'Av? You know, the little selections you can learn on Tisha B'Av you can't learn? This one's a shocker. Uh, I'm going to spare some of the graphics, but Titus enters the Tvir. The Tvir is the Holy of Holies. He screams up to Kaddish Baruch, Locus, locus, you wolf. You're a king, and I'm a king. He says, come make war. He says, Aye Elokemo, where is their God? I don't see him anywhere. He takes his sword, he stabs the parochis. Hashem makes a miracle. The parochis bleeds. Parochis is the curtain covering the arrow. There's no arrow there in the second temple period, but it's the parochis is still there. Hashem makes a miracle. He makes it seem to the ignorant Titus like Hashem, like he had killed Hashem. Titus doesn't stop there. He takes a zona. A woman of ill repute, a harlot. Some say one version is two zonos. He takes them into the Kodesh Kedoshim. He spreads out a Sefer Torah and he does unspeakable things in there. He boasts that he's killed Hashem. He steals the two golden menorahs, the Shulchanos, the Mizrakim, the Big Day Kodesh, the Parochis, the Klei Kodesh. He marches back to Rome. He parades them down the street to show his valor. Back in Yerushalayim, the Vesa Mikdash burns. It burns all the way till sunset on the 10th of Av. It leaves the walls and other structures behind. Unlike the first temple's destruction, the second temple's destruction, the Shekhinah does not depart. It never departs. It's still there today. The Kedusha that Ezra reestablished remains till today. In Yavna, Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakkai and all the rabbis with him, Terkriya, The Kosal Moravi is untouched. The Shekhinah is in the west. It's the closest of the four retaining walls to the Holy of Holies. Uh, and, and it remains till today. The revolt continues even after the fall of Yerushalayim. But it's basically, at this point, uh, a matter of, just a matter of time. Herodian, south of Jerusalem, falls in the year 71. Michvar across the Jordan River is, it falls in 72. And the last site to fall in the year 73 is Masada, where the Jews thought they'd escape to the edge of the world, and nobody would ever go there, and the, and the Romans fighting the term genocide was coined when? 1942 by a Canadian Jew uh, to describe what was going on with, um, to, by what the Nazis were doing to the Jews in Europe, but it pertained back in these days too. The Romans were genocidal. Leave no Jew uh, somehow. You can't let them go. And even in Masada they went down, they smoked the Jews out of the caves, uh, the Jews either strangled inside the suffocated inside the caves, or they went out and they were beheaded, or they're courted, they carted back to Rome in slavery. Uh, in one story, there are many, many horrific stories told. Umar and Gitin tells the story of 400 boys and girls who are being taken towards a certain fate of harlotry, both the boys and the girls, and they jump to the sea, understanding that under those circumstances, better to die than to transgress. When the second temple's destroyed, and we say we understand this point that I mentioned yesterday, but let's 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 reinforce it. Second temple's destroyed. The the reality that we're in today is concretized. 
all bad things that happened to Klal Yisrael are now a result, an ongoing fallout from this destruction. With the destruction of the second temple, Batal Shamir, that little cute structure, uh, uh, thing that could destroy, uh, eat into the hardest metals, was no longer available to us. Um, there used to be a fine flower called Nofesusim, or some say it was an exquisite honey. These delicacies are gone. Um, people who were valorous are no longer there. Wine used to taste like something. No more. We don't have the taste of the real taste of wine. What it was like at the time of the Mesa Mikdash. All over Eretz Israel, they have they used to have these fragrant cinnamon trees. Gone. We don't have anything like this nowadays. We can imagine, but we don't know what it is. Um, with their new worries, Martin said, "This is something really scary." Men lost their desire for their wives, and their desire increases for averus, for, for forbidden people. Um, the pasuk says, but apparently with the destruction of made these are not absolutes, but on, on a, compared to what life was like in the times of the temple, it's not like it was in the good old days. When we hearken, when we when we long for the good old days, these are the days we're we're, we're, we're missing. Um, this is how Chazal explained it, and requires a lot more analysis than we're giving right now. But realize we've lost something that affects us at every possible level of uh, of our lives. The Christian world will bring the destruction of the temple as proof that Hashem hates the Jews because they rejected Yashka. This will be an argument that lasts till the modern day. The Jewish world understand the new phase in history. They call it, by a biblical term, Hesterponim. Do you know the expression? Basic Jewish history, you have to know what Hesterponim is. Don't leave just yet. Hesterponim? Okay, you don't have to learn Hesterponim, not my fault. Uh, Hesterponim means, it's from the Lashon of whose name is included in this thing? It's, it's, it's Esther. Esther, Esther Ponim, Esther. Hester Ponim means Hashem's hidden face. Hashem doesn't have a face in any real term that you and I know. Hashem is beyond physical reality. But it's, he's described as if we were the adulterous member, uh, uh, wife in a marriage. We turned away from Hashem, and so he turns away from us. Hester Ponim is, is, is that perception that people have in history that nothing makes sense, that life is a roller coaster, ups and downs, mostly downs. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you get back to the uh, entrance uh, if you're always going down. But um, we've, been we've been declining. We've been declining. I guess so. Um, and things happen, like the Holocaust, I guess is, is maybe uh, for our own modern sensibility, that you stare at and your jaw drops, drops open and you, we lack a coherent explanation. That's Hester Pony, when things don't make sense, but in the end of days, it'll all become clear to us Hashem's wisdom and why, why, why things were as they, as, as, as they were. Chazal devised ingeniously a whole system to emphasize the Chorban. It becomes part of our lives so that no generation passes without realizing we've got to rebuild the base of Mikdash. And so it becomes fabric of our lives. It becomes part, part and parcel of everything. It's tangible. Till today, the base of Mikdash, we daven, we cry, we aspire to rebuilding, we face Yerushalayim when we daven, we uh, fast in all the fast days, we tear Kriya when we visit Yerushalayim. Who's, who's not yet? Don't, don't answer this question. Who has torn Kriya in the vis upon visiting Yerushalayim if you haven't been there in 30 days? If you've never done it, you should. You tear your shirt. I'm not a t-shirt. Take a shirt. You should feel it. Good. You should do it. Basic halacha. Go to the area. The best place to tear, the really best place, is not when you see the coastal, it's when you see the makom of mikdash itself, the place where the base of mikdash is. So honestly, if you take the light rail, as you're going down the light rail, at one point you look to your left, from this direction, from the yeshiva, you'll see the golden dome. That's the best place to tear Korea. You're looking in the place of the mikdash. In the, in the, in the train. 
In the train. Right there. Tear train. Yeah, be careful about it having knives in the train. They may tackle you. Uh, but um, something like that. When you when you see that, when you see that, yeah, you want to be careful nowadays. What's that? If you've never torn yes, once you're here, this is not a, I have, this is another file of mine. I have to share this up. It's really interesting. But the minute of people who live in Yerushalayim, and technically if you're here for more than 30 days, your status is one of somebody who lives in Yerushalayim, the minute is not to tear. Because the assumption is you never go more than 30 days without visiting that area. Rabbi Yoshev Zatzal said that a person who didn't visit the area of the Kosal Harabais, who lived in Yerushalayim, it's like a person who lived in the same city with his mother and doesn't visit her, her at least once every 30 days. You're right. So then it's not your fault. So perhaps then after after 30 days, if you've never torn Korea, I would suggest that you do so. With the psukim. What kind of shirt? Regular shirt. It means that it means that you're um, still too ignorant to understand the ramifications. Michal's question is, if you don't cry, if you don't cry over the tragedy, it just means you don't know enough. And you have to keep learning Torah to start internalizing these eternal lessons. If you see, you see that, that oh, because you're always going on the train, and maybe, yeah. That, you know, if you're always on the train, then maybe 30 days have not elapsed and you don't check Korea. If, you're already torn, if you already have torn Korea, then you're considered a Yerushalmi and you don't tear. Let's get, let's get, back, let's get back on track. If you want more questions, if anybody's interested in this topic, I have a lot more on this. I think it's a very interesting topic, tearing Korea by the Kosal. The, um, we leave an unfinished square in our homes. Y'all do that? Tomorrow about Basra, bring down the Shulchan Uh Walk into the Rebbe's home next time and notice he's got a square unfinished. One square, an amma by an amma of unpainted, usually right across from the entrance. Our house, we don't have a place right across the entrance. We have it right near the entrance. But um, you go in the house, you see an unfinished square. That's, that's to commemorate the, the, the Chorban. Um, people skip a course at a meal. Women don't put on all their jewelry. They skip a piece of jewelry as a way of remembering the basic. The These are all straightforward. Yeah, all the time. These are all straightforward okay, halachas. So how can they, if they're always missing a piece of jewelry? Right, then it's never in this room. Well, in other words, what they would theoretically wear to feel all put together, a necklace and a bracelet and a diamond ring, they leave one, they leave one off. Always? At a wedding. At a wedding, most famously, at the top, at the height of our greatest simcha, we crush the glass. All of which coming to, to, to try to reinforce the fact that this is the center of our lives. Without the base of Mikdash, our lives are empty. After the Chorban, hold the thought for just a moment. After the destruction of the temple, the Gemara tells us, Nin alu the gates of prayer themselves are locked. Baruch Hashem, there's, a, there's still hope. The Share Dmaos, the gates of tears, and the gates of tshuva always remain open. And, and in addition to the gates of tshuva and the gates of tears, tefillah b'tzibor, your public prayers, one of the reasons to come to Minyan and Davin, these are never ignored. Go ahead, Mia, yeah, you were saying? Well, I've, I've seen people like put, like, from Pesach, they put the chicken wings, like how they land on top of the, like, the doorpost. Right, also true. That's a sign of the Chorban. Yeah. Excellent. The, um, without the Hellenizers, without the Tzedukim, without these other sects vying for power, now Chazal, the rabbis, emerge as the uncontested authority. Everybody recognizes the greatness of Chazal. There are no sects now. For the next 400 years until the completion of Shas, um, there's never, listen to this, never one instance where there's conflict in Hashkafa or Halacha between a sage and a non-sage. There were bad guys. 
they're called usually in the Gemara Ame Haaretz. That just means they're ignorant. But even the ignoramuses, the Ame Haaretz, saw the greatness of Chazal. It's the kind of thing where, you know, the shul I don't daven in is orthodox. You know, people like this today. They see that the rabbis are right. They just don't live that life. That's the nature of the times, of the, in, in, the, in the great times of the Talmud. Rabbi Gamliel II and his peers set out now with the recognition of the destruction and the concern that Torah might be lost, and especially the oral tradition. This now, they, they set a new phase in writing, in formulating a written code. Learning, because we don't have a temple anymore, we don't have a national capital, learning becomes a national fixation. People will travel away from their wives with their wives' blessing for huge amounts of time, Rabbi Akiva most famously for 12 and then another 12 years. But that's the norm, rather than the exception. At the market, at all gatherings, in the road, Torah was what was discussed. Torah was what was on everybody's mind. So much so that the Gemara that we happened to learn this morning, nothing's by, nothing's by chance, the Gemara we learned this morning, Kedushin, Lamed Aleph, Lamed Beis, talks about Kibbut Av, and if your father's in town and you're in town, the basic assumption of, of, of the Gemara is your father's a Talmud Chacham and you're a Talmud Chacham. The question is, is who's more famous in that local authority? But it's reflecting this exact sensibility that everybody's learning Torah because what else is there for the Jews? The great rabbis of this phase, of this period, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Eliezer, there are great stories about them. I, um, I, it takes me days to tell these stories. I'm just going to give the highlights of them. One of them, famous in the Mishnah, Rosh Hashanah, also the Gemara and Brachos, Rabbi Gamliel is the Nasi, the descendant of, of Hillel, and he demands authority. And it's not for ego satisfaction. He, he has no power trip. But when Rabbi Yeshua goes up against him and declares a different day for the new month and therefore a different day for, for Yom Kippur, Rabbi Gamliel publicly humiliates him and demands that he come on the day that he had calculated for Yom Kippur he demands that he violate Yom Kippur, because it's not the real Yom Kippur, as a way of asserting his own supremacy. And the goal is to show that in these fraught times, if we don't even have unity of the rabbis, we're, we're lost. It's to establish authority, and that's, that's, that's the purpose of that story. Familiar story to you? Mm -hmm. um, a similar story is told also with the same figures, the same, same, same um, with huge ramifications. It's referred to as the Tanur Shal Achnai. The, uh, the unusual uh, oven about, um, about which they argued. Rabbi Eliezer had the position that it was pure. It was tahor. And everybody else, including Rabbi Yeshua, felt it was tomeh. And the halacha goes like the majority. And Rabbi Eliezer didn't let up. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm right. And he went around individually and all the sages and tried to persuade him of his position. Do you know this Gemara? Yeah, okay. He, said, he says, yeah, it has to be. He said, if I'm right... Let this tree suddenly grow carob, and it did. If I'm right, let the water flow backwards up this aqueduct, and it did. If I'm right, let the walls, the base, base measures that we're learning in uh, tilt, and they do. Halfway, partly in deference to Rabbi Yeshua, who represented the other faction. Um, Rabbi, said, Rabbi Yeshua says, no, we don't paskin like you. It's the majority versus the minority in order to show the, the supremacy of Torah and the system of learning Torah, which goes after the majority. A basko, a heavenly voice comes down and says, Halacha goes like Rabbi Yezer. Rabbi Yeshua responds, Loba Shemayimhi. It's not in heaven. You gave us the authority. That's Torah. Torah is in the hands. Hashemayim Shemayim Lashem Va'aretz Nasan Livnei Adam. It's given to the rabbis, Lashem Shemayim, to determine the fate. Rabbi Yezer is put into cherem to the last day of his life. He's excommunicated. 
all Hashem Shemayim. And it could be misunderstood as saying, wow, the rabbis really have it in for one another, but they loved each other. When Rabbi Akiva, uh, who's Rabbi Eliezer's chief disciple, has to deliver the sad news that he's in the harem, he dresses in, in black, in mourning. Because they didn't take any pleasure in this, but it was defending the honor of Torah itself, and that you, you, you can't compromise on. But they still didn't have the unity. Who did? In these days? Yeah. No. Why? No, they didn't. No, they did not. In other words, everybody accepted the cherem. Even Rabbi Yezer accepted the cherem because he recognized the greater good. Because he still, his still felt he was right about the Tanur Shalach Nai. No, Rabbi Yezer is one of the great tzaddikim of all time. He's still Rabbi Yezer Agado. We learned, we learned some of the great. In fact, when he died, the Gemara in Baba Metziah describes, Rabbi Sanhedrin describes that um, that he. Um, Huge, like the ocean of Torah was lost. Rabbi Akiva barely got drops, as, 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 as in metaphorical terms that he described. No, he's, he's tremendous, and he accepted it. And all this requires greater, greater deeper analysis. The um, the uh, Rabbi Akiva himself will emerge as the undisputed Gadol Hador. He's another one. He's the last of the five people who lived 120 years together with. You can rattle them off quickly. Who lived 120 years? Moshe. Who's next? Ezra. Hillel, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and Rabbi Akiva. Um, back in the days when he himself was in Am Haaretz, he started to learn formally when he was 40, um, he himself admitted that he despised the rabbis. Right? He said, in the, to quote the Gemara, I wanted to bite and break the bones of every Talmud Chacham. Why? He thought they looked down on him. Common feeling. Around the year 117, some, some say it lasted for the next decade or so, Hadrian, the new Caesar, seeks to rebuild the base of Mikdash. Initially, his hope is to just calm the Jews down. Um, it causes optimism. People persuade him, no, 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 the Jews are going to rebel. Who persuades him? Kutim, Samaritans, and also the Minim. The heretics, probably the Christians. They nullify the decree. He does so, so so spectacularly that he decrees that a non-Jewish city be built over Ir HaKodesh. And he changes the name of Yerushalayim. Oh, to Elia Kapitolina. Correct. Elia is named after himself. Kapitolina, because it was one of the names of the god Jupiter Kapitolinus. Kapitolina. Uh, Kapitolina. Uh, and he builds, instead of a base of Mikdash, a big, fat Pesel of Odazara to Jupiter Kapitolina right there where the base of Mikdash stood. Yushalayim is no longer Yushalayim. It's a Roman outpost called Eli Capitolina. And Judea, when it had been centuries, the name of the, the Jewish commonwealth was no longer Judea. Hadrian's hope was to blot out any memory of a Jewish presence in the land. And he thinks, you know, got to name this place something. It's part of the Roman Empire. Got to find something that's neutral. Hmm. Was there any a nation? Was there ever a nation here who was dominant, but they've long since shot? I know you got it. That long since passed from the scene and they're extinct. So there's nobody's going to come and claim. Well, this is my territory. I know the ancient Palestine are there. We'll rename or we'll redub this country Palestina. That's where the name comes from. It has nothing to do with the local Arabs. It was a Roman name of convenience as a way of blotting out the memory of the Jews and making, making a neutral area uh, in the name of, a, in the, of an extinct nation. He decrees a death penalty on any Jew going to Eretz Israel, especially Yerushalayim. 
Hadrian forbids Shmir Shabbos, Bris Mila, conversion, Shema. The decrees are harsher than those than those of the Greek days. How can you prevent the Jews had insulted Roman honor and the Romans figured they'd wipe them out. They went after the rabbis too, and this is the time of the Asara Haruge Malchus, but I don't know if I'll get there today. Um, the Jews will respond optimistically by digging tunnels and caves in which they wait, and some of which we crawled through uh, earlier this year. They wait in ambush, planning a national revolt. Bakochva emerges. I'm not going to go to the whole story of Bar-Kochva. He's got superhuman powers. He can catch a catapult with his bare fist. Um, he seems to be the one, to the point that even Rabbi Akiva comes around to acknowledging that he's a candidate to be Mashiach. Rambam says he was never proven as Mashiach, but they thought maybe this will be the guy. After all, it was almost 70 years after the Horban. Maybe there's hope. Maybe maybe this will be the beginning of the third base of Mikdash. That was the that was what everybody davened for, for, um, for. Turned out, uh-oh, didn't work out that way. Bar Kochva speaks well. You tell me if you think this is chutzpah. He says, and because all over here I'm speaking to Kaddish Baruch Hu, lo sisod velo sichsof. He says, don't help me, but don't embarrass me. I'm going to take care of this one, Hashem. Uh, they recoiled from him, but it was too late. He had already amassed the armies. He had already started the revolt. We have ruins. We have coins. We have inscriptions from this period where the, where the Jews rose up. It's the last time the Jews effectively rose up against any foreign dominant power in Palestine to retake the land and to rebuild the base of Mikdash. They were successful for a few periods. The coins say first year of Bar Kokhba's success, second year, third year. There was no fourth year. In 135, approximately in the Common Era, uh, he was crushed. He's described by Chazal as one of four generations that tried to push unnaturally, artificially, the end of days. He was Dochet Alakates, together with Amram and Shuselach and um, Dinai. And on the ninth of Av, Betar, where he's based, is captured and destroyed. Bar Kokhva is killed, his head has a snake coiled around it. I told a longer version of this inside the caves. Anybody remembers that? We were together. Um, Hadrian himself gets the head as a present with the snake coiled around it. And Hadrian says, if Hashem, their God, didn't do this, I don't know who could have. The, um, the descriptions of destruction, especially in the Yushali version of Masechus Tainis, are so horrific, they even outdo what's described as the destruction of the temple. Um, all of Beitar are massacred, save one Sadiq, Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the, the descendant of the Nassim, gets away. Um, he has a son named Rabbi Yehudan Hanasi, who's able to sustain. There's always, in the, in, in the midst, Hashem always has compassion. In the midst of our destruction, our greatest tragedies, Hashem always provides the, uh, the secret for the future. And Rabbi Shimon Gamliel gets away. The Romans know that the Jews take care of each other in life and in death. And in, and in utter cruelty, they arrange the corpses standing up, and they, they decree no burial for them. Their, their arms are outstretched, and Hashem makes a miracle, and he, he permits the corpses to stand there without deteriorating at all. And because of this, we say, in benching, the fourth bracha determined by Chazal, the first three are deraisa, the fourth is derabanan, um, hatova metiv. Is determined because of Kenegadanche uh, Besar, who Hashem made this nace. It'll be it'll be many years before finally they can take down the bodies and give them proper burial. Jews are now aware that this would be the beginning of the longest and harshest of all the exiles. Because of this, another last significant point for today and for this phase of history, we'll, we'll conclude on this. 
kind of very, very, very sad, I wouldn't say bittersweet, mostly just bitter uh, note at the destruction of the, the, the final destruction of Bar Kokhba in the year 135. Because of this, three oaths are made. Look at the end of the Gemara Ksubos to see what this is, uh, what the significance. The three oaths are administered based on Psukim. They are as follows. Jews agree, they make an oath that they will not be Ola Bechoma, which means that they will not take back Eretz Yisrael by force. We're not going to fight for this land. They make an oath, number two, that they're not going to rebel against the various monarchs that, dis- that, that subjugate us. Number three, the non-Jews make an oath that they will not persecute the Jews too much. Not too much. Um, this is the last revolt of any real dimension and success until modern day. Um, almost no Jews now are permitted to remain in Yehuda. The center of gravity moves to the Galilee. Um, the three oaths remain pertinent and controversial till today. How is it that Jews are permitted to be here today? There are a lot of different Terutzim. Uh, one answer is the Goyim didn't keep them, their end of the bargain. They persecuted us too much, so we don't have to keep our end of the bargain. Um, probably the most famous answer is our own host, the Or Sameach, Rav Mersin writing at the time of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, jumping ahead in history a bit, um, when the British, who were the local power in Palestine, said the Jews are, actually <laughs> very ambiguous word, if you read the Balfour Declaration, it says the Jews are entitled to a home in the land of Palestine. They didn't describe what that meant. It could be maybe a home with a garage and a garden in the backyard, and that all the Jews will live there. They didn't say it was actually a natural state, but they did say something about a home, and he said because the foreign power who was dominant in Palestine at the time, acknowledged the Jews' legitimacy coming back and having their own homeland, he said the three oaths are no longer valid. Um, history goes on, and arguably the most compelling unit of history is what we haven't yet gotten to, so we'll have to with Rosh Hashem, the last 2,000 years of exile uh, and rebirth. Yeah. Yeah.